Since King Mohammed VI inherited the throne in Morocco 10 years ago and began his ambitious modernization of Moroccan society, the legendary port city of Tangier has been absolutely transformed. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting a first-hand account of what Tangier offers for the 21st century traveler. Formerly a mysterious refuge for both artists and con artists, Tangier has been restored to its former glory, thanks to a king who's re-envisioning it as an inviting introduction to the Arab culture of North Africa. Tangier-based tour guide Aziz Begdouri updates us on why he's so excited about the renewal that's going on in his hometown. And for a cooler alternative, nature photographer Stephen Koslowski tells us about his trial-and-error introduction to Alaska's North Slope, as he spent months preparing to photograph polar bears in their native habitat. We're heading to mystical deserts, both hot and cold, from Tangier to the Arctic, today on Travel with Rick Steves. In some ways, the most exciting day you could have in Spain is taking the fast boat to Africa. Just an hour or two away from the Gibraltar area, you land in Tangier. And Tangier is not the Tangier you always thought it was. It's changed hugely, and we're going to learn just why. And we'll cool down with one man's adventure in Alaska, where he went to photograph polar bears and came back with a new respect for what the sparse Arctic landscape can teach us. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today I'm joined by Aziz Begdouri. Aziz is a tour guide in Tangier. He joins us on the telephone from Morocco, and we're going to talk about how his city has changed. Aziz, thanks for joining us. Uh, You're welcome, Mr. Rick Steves. (laughs) Boy, you know, I think Tangier has an image that is a little bit different. Uh, When I was a younger traveler, Tangier was uh, dangerous, ugly, full of con artists, kind of a dilapidated city. Now it seems to be changed. Last time I was there, it had a fresh image. Tell me, uh, why the big change in Tangier? Uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, Tangier has been, uh, for 39 years, within the time when the last king, Hassan II, was neglected. But with the new king, Mohammed VI, he took over the throne on the 30th of July, 1999. Uh, the changes have been happening. And big changes have been happening really in Tangiers within the last five years. So all those good changes are the initiative of the king that pushing forward good time and bring Tangiers to the golden ages of Tangiers during the time when it was international. So Aziz, Mohammed VI is your king today, and his father, Hassan II, II. did not like Tangier. Why, why, what was his problem with Tangier? Uh, Tangiers, as you know, on the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and sort of 50s, till 56, it was an uh, international city. It was a city that was controlled by different countries, by the French, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Italian, and the British. And it was a tax-free zone. It was the most prosperous city in Morocco. It was the most liberal city in Morocco and the world at that time. So the king, the king thought uh, Tangier is too Western, too liberal, uh, not Moroccan enough because it was an international city. Now the new king, the first place he visited when he was the king was Tangier. Is that right? That correct. Wow. So Tangier is the number four city in Morocco, and the new king said it will once again be a great Moroccan city. Correct. So he wants to bring Tangiers back to the good times, and plus it is the main gate to Africa. It is the main entrance to Morocco. So it is the image of Morocco, and he sees that Tangiers has a great potential. So Mohammed VI is a smart marketer because when everybody was thinking about Morocco, they were thinking about Tangier, and that was not a fair look at Morocco because uh, Morocco was better than the old Tangier. Absolutely, absolutely. So now when we visit Tangier today, what is striking for me is we find an Art Deco city. Art Deco from the 19, what, 1920s, 1930s? Yes. It's a really rich city in terms of uh, architecture. We have touches from all those countries that has passed through here. Plus, Tangiers, it is a city has always has been a meeting point for different civilizations. Also, it's a city that was colonized uh, through its history by different countries because of its tragic position right on the Straits of Gibraltar. It's interesting for me when you think of the many different colonial powers. When I go to Tangier, it's a rare place when there's three languages on a menu or on a sign. Mm -hmm. English is not there. You have 
Arab, you have French, and you have Spanish. Correct. And then yeah. you might have English. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because here Arabic is the first language. Uh, French is the second official language that because of the French colony that being in from 1912 to 1956. And then the Spanish, because we are very close to Spain, and also during the French period in Morocco, east of Tangiers, was the Spanish Morocco. Right. Now, today, when you go to uh, Morocco, it's actually quite easy for a visitor from Spain to go to Morocco. Uh, it takes, what, 90 minutes on the boat from Gibraltar or Tarifa? Uh, it takes about 35 minutes from Tarifa to Tangiers and an hour from Algeciras. Okay, so Algeciras is the big industrial uh, port, and mm-hmm. uh, Tarifa is more of the tourist town. Either yes. way, you get a fast boat, and in about an hour, you're in Africa. And most people come in, of course, the Costa del Sol is a big tourist zone for international travelers in Spain, and they all want to come down to Africa for a day. So they'll come in groups, and they zip over there. They're met by a guide at the port, and they walk around and bus around and see all of the clichetic tourist uh, experiences. They buy their carpet, and they get on the boat, and they go home. Um, And you have an option now. You can go on your own without a tour, or you can go with the tour. Uh, tell me the day that a typical package tourist with a big group will have when they come from the Costa del Sol with their tour guide. Tell me their schedule for the day when they arrive in, in Morocco in the morning. When they arrive in the morning, the local guide meet them at the port. So uh, they meet them and take them on the bus, and they take them a little bit on the outskirts to see the camels uh, and just get on the camel get off the camel, and then take them to the old city and visit a little bit of the casbah and then to the restaurant, have lunch, and then shopping, and then go back home. So they have a couple of Kodak moments. You see snake charmers, mm-hmm. you the see dancers, charmers, yeah, you see a casbah, camel. Yeah. And this is kind of crass and, to me, kind of, well, crass. I mean, you got 50 mm-hmm. uh, American and British tourists gathered around one camel, and everybody gets on and takes a photograph. Mm-hmm. And then you go see a snake charmer. And then you walk through the gauntlet of shoppers trying to sell you things, but the guide will keep everybody together. Mm-hmm. And you go to the touristy restaurant, mm-hmm. and you have a belly dancer, and you talk to yeah. other Americans. Yeah. And then you go shopping for a carpet, mm-hmm. and then right. you run back to the boat, and you mm-hmm. uh, uh, escape to Europe again. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's why the, <laughs> the, our visitors, they don't get the real uh, uh, feel of the real Morocco, and they don't discover the culture. They don't learn about the history of the city. They don't learn about the culture and and our society and our people. And I, I think that must be sad for you because you're a teacher and you see these people and they're in the control of the guide who's really a, a shopping consultant. And to, to me, when I was with you walking around Tangier without the tour groups, when, yeah. we, when we passed a tour group, it was a single file line of people hanging onto their day bags so they won't be stolen, going from one tourist shop to the next tourist restaurant. And they all had little colored patches indicating which guide was there so the right guide would get kickback money when they went shopping. And uh, it seemed like a self-imposed hostage crisis, frankly. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. And plus, when they come, that's absolutely 100% correct. And plus, when the the groups go in the the Casbah, they are all the time followed by street vendors. And that's uh, really sad because poor tourists, he also grabbed their bag and they're worried and they don't get the chance to uh, look at the old buildings and look at the people and take pictures and get the real feel. So at the end, they just want to ask the guide, where is the bus? Where is the bus? You <laughs> have them all the time. Where is the bus? Where is the bus? They just want to, to leave. And that that what hurt me because they get... Uh, really bad taste of Morocco. So if I, Aziz, by the way, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Aziz Begdouri, who's an independent guide in, in Tangier, uh, the, the port town in the north of Morocco. And uh, Aziz, uh, if I'm taking a typical big group in from Spain to Morocco, I'm with my local guide, and uh, he, I do not have too much free time to go shopping. He will take me to the carpet shop. If I look at a carpet there, and I spend $500 for a carpet... How much commission will my guide receive? Well, guides make a big uh, commission. Depends 20, 20% on percent. Uh, would you say? Hmm? Would you imagine twenty percent? Twenty percent. Yeah. So that would change the the price I have to pay for the carpet because the merchant knows that I'm with a guide. He will have to pay a kickback, and the and the price will be less flexible because I'm with a group. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. 
And if I came back later on my own, I could get a better price for the carpet? Well, you can, if you're a good bargainer, because bargaining is the thing that we teach the visitors and the travelers that they have to bargain hard in Morocco. Do you have, have to bargain? bargain? As a Moroccan going shopping, do you bargain also? Uh, yes, yes. For Even for some clothing or for some milk or some cake? Uh, milk, no. No. But most of the things, if, yes. If you're buying some furniture, a, a table furniture, or something, yes. you will bargain in the shop? Uh, yes. Okay, and then the tourist is expected to be wealthy, so he has a higher price? They, they, they mark up uh, higher. Yeah. And the more the tourists show that uh, he's interested in the products, also the, the price is even. So, Aziz, just a, a secret between you and me. What is mm-hmm. a, good, uh, a good skill for bargaining more effectively with a merchant in Morocco? Uh, the person shouldn't uh, show a lot of interest okay. on the product. Suddenly ask and just walk away. <laughs> okay. And then he has to, to start up with a low price. Is also, it's very good that he should start to bargain only if he's interested. Because it's, it's a matter of um, respect or, or etiquette. If you start to bargain and you get the price you like, you must buy that then. Yes, yes. Okay. That's why the traveler should know that if he really wants that product or not, if he likes that product, he can go ahead and ask the price. Because this, the good thing here, they don't get insulted. Right. So they can... Should a, a tourist pay with cash or with um, credit card? Uh, both are safe. Uh, I mean, credit card is safe in Morocco, so it's, okay. it, it's fine. We're talking a little bit about the big tourist way to see Morocco from a shopping touristy point of view. Mm-hmm. Now, I was impressed, Aziz, about the ease of going independently. And you can take the boat, and for the same price, you get a tour or without a tour, really. But if you go without a tour, you walk onto the shore, you change money very easy. Yes, correct. You, you find a lot of people waiting to be your tour guide, if, uh, but you can mm-hmm. walk past them and right into the town. Mm-hmm. And I find the city is safer now than it was in the past. Absolutely. Much safer, much cleaner, uh, less chaotic, and more organized. All right. I'm speaking with Aziz Begdouri. Aziz's uh, email is aziztour at hotmail.com, A-Z-I-Z-T-O-U-R. And Aziz, I understand that you will take visiting Americans around for 30 euros. That's about $40 for a uh, five- or six-hour tour. Is that right? Correct. And is that a typical um, cost if you are arriving without a guide, if you land on the shore of Tangier? You talk to all of these young guides that want to take you around If you offer them 30 euros, that should be a, a good for a half-a-day tour? Uh, yes. All right. I mean, they will ask for more, but... Of course. But that's a good day's wage for a Moroccan mm-hmm. tour guide. Mm-hmm. We'll get to your calls in just a moment as we explore more about Morocco and Tangier on Travel with Rick Steves. Aziz answers your questions about visiting Morocco from his home in Tangier, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425, and you can add your comments and travel reports to the radio message board at ricksteves.com. Tangier is certainly cleaning up its act as Morocco's King Mohammed VI introduces democratic reforms and invests in the legendary city that was popularized by novelists and painters, but also plagued by spies and smugglers. In fact, in his book, Innocence Abroad, Mark Twain recommended to the U.S. government that when a man commits a crime so heinous that the law provides no adequate punishment, 
they should make the guy Council General to Tangier. But that was then. Today's Tangier is a whole new city. By phone from his home in Tangier, tour guide Aziz Begdouri joins us to describe the changes that have started to come to his city and to take your calls at 877-333-RIC. Aziz, you have your new king now, um, Mohammed VI, and he's, I understand, more modern. His, his wife was, he actually married a, a commoner, not a royal person, is that right? Uh, correct. So the king who got married, and he, first time, uh, the way he got the king married, uh, he made big changes. He brought, uh, like, the old traditions of royal family. Firstly, she's considered the first queen in the history of this country that has been seen by the Moroccan people. Now, this is amazing. So the king's father, Hassan II, he was mm-hmm. married, he had a queen, and you never saw the queen in public? No, not at all. My goodness. Now, this yeah. is a big change for you, that the, the queen is, mm-hmm. is uh, a public figure now. Mm-hmm. And other big change, that the king, for the first time, he married a commoner. So it was more a marriage for love. Before, the marriages were always within the royalty. So is Mohammed VI popular with the people as, as the king of Morocco? Uh, yes, uh, Mohammed VI is very popular with uh, the Moroccan people because he's uh, moving Morocco forward. He's making a lot of uh, big changes. Morocco has changed completely. He's uh, making big changes in the social life of people. So he's uh, creating a big uh, middle class, or he's on the way to create a large middle class in the country, he's pushing the government to have a lot of social programs. He's moving the economy. He's changing our legislations and laws to modernize them. Now, I am confused a little bit. So Morocco, it has a king. Is it not a democracy then? No, Morocco is a kingdom. And the political system, no, it is a democracy. Because Morocco is, firstly, is a monarchy. It is a constitutional monarchy. We have a constitution. And we have a free elected government. Every four years, we have free elections. We have a plurality of political parties. In fact, we have too many in Morocco. It's so chaotic. We have 33 political parties. Wow, but your king is more influential than uh, the English queen, for instance. Absolutely. Yes, the queen in England, she is more symbolic and figurehead, but the king here he has a lot of power, and all the power he has got is stipulated in our constitution. So when we have general elections, the political party that gained the majority or most vote in the elections, the prime minister, he's from that party. And then the prime minister, he forms the government. So the king might be more like the president, and then he has to deal with the legislative Correct. branch, with the prime minister. So that's interesting. That helps me get my mind around that. Also, mm-hmm. in Morocco, is it a religious government or a secular government? As a government, government is secular, because we have right now in power is a socialist party. But Morocco as a state, it is a still considered in the Moroccan constitution as the religion of the state is Islam. Like the religion of the Norwegian state is Lutheran. Mm-hmm. But in Morocco, is there freedom of religion? Can Jews and Christians function in the state as easily as Muslims? Uh, absolutely, yes. Really absolutely? Um, in the military, we, in the government, Christians can function? We have a small Christian uh, community. As Moroccans, we don't have much of the Christians. We have more Jewish. Uh-huh. And in the government, we, have, we had in the past government like uh, ministers as Jewish ministers. Now we have uh, uh, the king advisor. He's a Jewish person. He is considered the only king advisor that still going on since the last king, Hassan II. Wow. He's, he's very well known and very well respected in the country. His name André Azoulay. What about the state of women? Uh, I understand that uh, you have many ministers in the government who are female, and the governor of Casablanca is a woman? Yes, correct. So we had the election, general elections in September 2007, and we have major participation of women as candidates. And uh, we have a big number of women as members of the parliament today. And we have also the biggest changes. We have seven women as ministers in the government. Are you married, Aziz? Yes, I'm married. Would your wife say that women are treated equally in Morocco? Oh, truly equal in Morocco. Uh, my wife says uh, the situation in Morocco is changing a lot in favor of women, uh, but there's still things to catch up. 
ketchup. So it's uh, it's getting better, but there's uh, much better. Now, women worship separate in the mosques. Is that right? Mm, correct. Why is that? Mm, well, that's very religious. Uh, that because of the Islam religion, they believe that when they pray, they are in direct contact with God, uh, and they need like concentration. So that's why, according to Islam, if you mix women with men, so maybe maybe men will be distracted. So when you're praying in a mosque, would you be distracted if a woman was praying with you? Uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> but they no. think, they think but that. According to uh, Islam, they do that. I mean, I, and I think all the, like the Jewish, because even here we have a synagogue in Tangiers, they have the men downstairs and women. Women upstairs. Upstairs, yeah. Okay. All the religions, like ancient religions. They it's, a, have. it's a difficult um, adjustment. My daughter was studying in Morocco in a village, and uh, the boys could play soccer, but the girls could not play soccer. And there was a lot of protection of the women, and I think some people think it would be respect for the women and protecting the women. Other people might think it's keeping the women separate and apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The truth, the way how it defined uh, the situation of women in Morocco, and the Moroccan women has, um, under the new king, big changes happening in her favor. All right which are very important. But as I told you, uh, there is a lot more to do. So if you look at a lot of Arab countries and stuff like this, if you compare the situation of Moroccan women with other women in the Arab world, so you will see that Moroccan women is way too advanced, has a lot of freedom, has a lot of equal rights with men. But if you compare it, for instance, with American women and stuff like this, so there is, we still have a lot to work on. So this is the modernization of Morocco with the new king, Mohammed VI. We have Adair on the line in Los Angeles. Adair, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Do you have a comment for Aziz? Yes. Um, which Moroccan cities would you recommend for a woman traveling solo? And uh, how could she avoid uh, overzealous street vendors? Street vendors? Well, I guess the question, Aziz, is just for a woman traveling in Morocco, what are the practical tips so she's not harassed by street vendors? And is there advice on what city to go and where to go at what time? The city is depend how much time she's going to go. So uh, one, two days, that tangers. Uh, if she has more time, I will recommend to go to Fez. Uh, if she has more time to go to Marrakesh, those are the most beautiful. So tangers, Fez, Marrakesh, small towns like Asila, uh, Shepshawan, Sawira. Then, if there's more time, you go to desert. But now, what what would a woman do differently? Uh, does a woman need to be more careful? Does a woman need to be more uh, respectful, not to offend people in public, or for a tourist? What are the things to learn? Women uh, would be best for to come and dress more conservative. And I think in American people, they're very well on that in Morocco. So they like just long sleeve and long pants. So no headscarf is required or anything like that. And uh, she has to be showing like she knows where she's going and not showing that she's lost. This way, if she shows that she's lost, a lot of people approach her. Why will they approach her? With, with bad ideas? Depends. If they see her as a tourist, so everyone will approach her. One wants to sell her something. Yeah. One wants to, to guide her. One wants just to harass her. Okay. But Morocco, for a woman, if she get a lot of uh, reading about Morocco and she get prepared, she can travel around Morocco very safely. So, Adair, I guess the, the comment would be dress modestly, uh, because if you're dressed at all provocatively, it would be misunderstood by the men. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're out and about, know where you're going. If you need to stop and be lost, step into a shop or a restaurant uh, so you're not looking like you're just uh, um, stranded on the street corner or you'll attract people that might be harassing you. And uh, otherwise, uh, if you're confident, uh, you should be able to do what men do, I guess. Yeah. Okay. And partially for her, she can, uh, Morocco, like to do the big cities, it's very safe. Like going from Tangiers to like Fez, Marrakesh, Casablanca, Rabat, if you do that circle, if you want to do like one week and like this, so that be very easy. Going a woman by herself to like small towns and tribes, that still uh, is possible, but but she has to be more prepared. Good luck, Adair. I think you'll do okay. fine. All right. Thanks for your call. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're in Morocco today with my friend and fellow tour guide, Aziz Begdori. And uh, we have Jim in Columbus, New Jersey. Hi, Jim. Thanks for your call. You're very welcome. Got a comment or a question for Aziz? Um, I was just interested in um, what an American tourist uh, should do or avoid doing in uh, Tangier, for example, that would avoid being offensive to the uh, local uh, population. Cultural faux pas. Uh, Aziz, is there anything Americans do unknowingly that is offensive to the locals? To be honest with you, because and I work with Americans a lot, and uh, they are very educated, the American people. They're very respectful to the culture, and they're very concerned always. They do their best to not to offend. I don't see that any Americans do something wrong in Morocco. Like I would tell you, other people, they come not dressed properly. So I would say that as an American, the Moroccan people are very friendly and they're more open and everything. So uh, even taking pictures is fine now in Morocco. Sometimes that's very traditional people, so it would be nice to ask them to if you're taking their pictures because Morocco is like a paradise for photographers. They love it. Sometimes uh, people go mad and just take pictures of everybody. Their traditional people, like Berber women or women in veils and stuff like this, they, they don't like that. So it would be nice if you want their uh, personal picture, just ask them. And you can do that easily by pointing to your camera and simply yeah. saying, photo? Yeah. yeah. Photo? And mostly they say, yes, it's okay. Now, when I was... Except in... if somebody's not dressed properly or he's seen that right, then he would be feeling like he's he will be offended if his picture is taken. And out of respect to him, you would mm-hmm. honor his wishes. Um, Aziz, when I was in Tangier last, I saw Al Jazeera on TV with some bad video images about American foreign policy and so on. But mm-hmm. I felt I felt no political edge on the streets or on the graffiti or on the posters or with the people. Mm-hmm. I felt very comfortable as an American in Morocco. That was a surprise to me. I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. What is your uh, understanding about the image of Americans uh, politically and so on when they visit Morocco? Uh, the Moroccan people, when they visit Morocco, they feel that the Moroccan people are friendly. Uh, Moroccan people love the American people. The American people that they come to Morocco, they feel that. And when, when they talk to the local people and they tell them they're American, they see that they are very friendly with them and there's no anti-American feelings we have in this country. As a matter of fact, Morocco has a special relationship with America because I believe you were the first country to recognize our country when it was newly formed. Yes, Morocco was the first country in the world to recognize the independence of the United States. That was back in 1777. Wow. And then the Sultan of Morocco, Moulay Sliman, gave to George Washington a building that we have in the Medina of Tangiers to be used for diplomatic services, and that is considered as the first American embassy in the world, and it was served for for 140 years as a U.S. embassy. All right. Hey, Jim, that gives you some ideas, I hope. Yes, very much so. Thank you, Aziz. Yeah. Happy travels, Jim. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, We have Jack on the line in Niceville, Florida. Hi, Jack. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Got a comment for Aziz. Uh Uh-huh. I just wanted to say that uh, we were there uh, close to 50 years ago, and... uh, it ignited a flame of travel, of a, of a whole new culture, and uh, seeing people that uh, we liked, and we've traveled the world since then. So uh, uh, I would like to return. I'm into hunting, and uh, I've always thought about returning to Morocco, maybe, and doing some hunting up there in the northeast uh, section. Uh, huh. Some of those wild hogs or something, and just living and sharing campfires with people. Aziz, what about that? An, an American visiting to go in, uh, into the countryside and, and uh, do some hunting? Yes, it's possible. In fact, uh, Morocco uh, has a great potential in all sites that have not discovered. One of them is hunting. There is a lot of areas and forests where tourists can come and hunt. When we're thinking about uh, Jack's experience 50 years ago, because the previous king didn't like Tangier and gave no federal money to Tangier, the mm-hmm. city physically has changed very little in 50 years. You'll find it a time warp. It's got this wonderful Art Deco cityscape. For me, it was a fascinating trip to go see a place that was sort of mothballed forever, and it has this 
misty World War II spy kind of image and this old Art Deco architecture. And then today it is thriving. And I'll never forget standing at the high end of uh, of the square uh, that you took me to. Grand Soco. The Grand Soco. Looking down and seeing a fluent, successful, peaceful Islamic city with with no necessary good or bad feelings about the United States, just living its life the way it wanted to yeah, successfully. Exactly. It was a beautiful moment, and when we're in southern Europe, if we can side trip down into Morocco, I think it's a beautiful opportunity to uh, gain an appreciation for a moderate, modernizing, and content society as part of Islam. It, it opened up some of the areas of uh, the marketplace, I remember. Uh, the old-time marketplaces were just uh, where you could see the people doing their handiwork right there with metals and leathers. And then there'd be a snake charmer, and I got to see my uh, my first cobra. And you know, Jack, those market scenes have not changed much at all because I was I wasn't there exactly. fifty years ago. I was there about one year ago, and the market was just just vivid as can be, and a, a delight mm-hmm. for anybody that's interested in photography or meeting people or, or any sort of a cultural education. And probably the, it, it hasn't changed, like I said, in maybe the two thousand years before I was there. Right, and that's what I liked about it. Well, maybe that's a conversation for another interview because I think there are places in Morocco that are just like right out of the biblical times. And I remember yeah, going south, absolutely. Of, the, yes. south of the Atlas Mountains. Mountains, and, yeah. Oh, boy, that's an exciting opportunity for travelers. Hey, Jack, mm-hmm. from Niceville, Florida, thanks for your call. Thank you. Aziz, talking with you today reminds me of the fun I had visiting Tangier with your help on my last visit. Help me finish with just an image. I've been with you for a day in Tangier. Take me to one beautiful spot just for a last little moment before I go back to Spain. I will take you to a terrace of a cafeteria in the Medina of Tangier uh, with having a beautiful view over the Casbah. And we will have a minty, a tea with mint leaves, with a lot of fresh mint, with orange blossoms and lemon verbena and with three spoons of sugar. That's very Moroccan because the Moroccan people love it so sweet and hot minty, which is very refreshing and very good for digestion. I'm there. Aziz Begdouri, thank you very much for taking us to Morocco. You're most welcome, uh, Rick. He spent months getting acquainted with Eskimo culture and learning how to photograph polar bears in the sparse yet stunning Alaska landscape. Stephen Kaslowski joins us next to describe how he was somehow drawn to the Arctic and the truths the land and its people taught him. We're cooling off on Alaska's North Slope, next on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a bleak corner of our world where you think of just nothing but ice and no trees and a few scraggly polar bears. But you know, there's a lot more to it than that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Stephen Kaslowski, who spent a decade in the polar region, photographing nature, getting to know the native people, and writing books. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. You spent a lot of time on the north shore of Alaska, right? The North Slope. Yep, the North Slopes and then the and the shore, and it's on the north side of the Brooks Range. And there's one road that goes from Fairbanks up to Prudhoe Bay, which was built back in the 70s to, uh, to open the Prudhoe Bay oil fields. And at first, I lived in a station wagon up on the North Slope of the Brooks Range to try to photograph nature in, uh, in, in a different way than most people do and go to the... And that's my focus, to, to spend at least half the year in nature, photographing nature. So you're a photographer, and you got uh, hooked into the, the, the Arctic, 
Why not the jungles or, or why not the desert? What, what was it about the, the polar region that grabbed you? I, I often wonder that, and I think it's the open space, and I think it's just wondering what's up there because it's 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 a place where the the clouds and the land and the sky all come together. It's a place where uh, myth and magic and reality all seem as one. There are stories in Point Hope, Alaska, which is in the northwest corner of the continent. It used to be the uh, the, the Inupiat headquarters in Alaska for the Eskimo people before uh, there were any white folks up there that have stories of uh, hunters going on the ice and uh, and hunting polar bears and the ice breaking off and floating away and them skinning the bear, wrapping all their clothes in the polar bear skin and then jumping into the freezing water and swimming a quarter mile to the main ice to survive. I mean, stories that don't seem real, they seem magical. And the um, the shamans, they used to have, uh, they still do to a point, but they used to have uh, shamans and the shamans around the Inupiat people, the Eskimo people, the Inuit people, they're the only one race of people that circumnavigate the globe as one race of people. So they would all have to get together, all the chiefs for meetings, and they would they would uh, go to the moon to meet at night. They would all do this out-of-body thing and, and go to the moon to meet at night. All the, wait a second, all the indigenous polar peoples, all the ethnic relatives of the Eskimos, mm-hmm. they have a summit, sort of a tribal summit. It was. It's my understanding, yeah, that they would. Is this meet. a physical thing, or are they just sort of? Uh, it's on... a uh, kind of a spiritual thing. Their bodies would stay on Earth, from what I understand of it. But they would, you know, t- you know, shamanism, yeah. traveling out of body, shape shifting, and they would uh, shape shift out of their bodies, and they would go to the moon and have a meeting, supposedly back in the day. Is there some sort of a um, solidarity that they all feel with each other, oh, e- even though they're in different political countries? Yeah, or? I mean, they're all they're tight tight-knit group of people. and Do uh, they get together? Do they have a, a, a summit? They have different games. And uh, in Canada, they have uh, in Shingle Point. Now, you have to understand, all Native societies took a beating when uh, the Western world came here. I think over 90% of Natives uh, died off, directly due to actually trying to kill them via disease and by accident in all kinds of ways. And the same thing happened in the Arctic coast of Alaska. So there's been a lot of rebuilding over the last century, I'd say, of their society. And now, again, they have games at Shingle Point, um, at the Mackenzie River, Delta. There are also different games and different celebrations. You'll have Nalugatuck celebration in, in places that do spring whaling, such as Barrow, Point Hope, Wainwright. And they'll get together at the end of a successful whale season, and they'll get all the game together, and they'll do a blanket toss and celebrate the end of this. And then they'll give all the meat out. And the point of it is to get all the elders and get the community together as a whole. They're really a community-oriented group of people, something we really lost in our country. And as a photographer and a journalist, have you been there to witness these events? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're pretty special. And, and it's pretty neat how uh, how these people, you know, a lot of my friends have taken me in and let me be a part of these things and, you know, get some frozen fish and go with them on hunting trips. And these people are essentially, they're Native Americans. They, yeah, absolutely. They're just the northernmost Native Americans. Yeah. And they have similar challenges that Native Americans all over the continent have had. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you're up there, you're connecting with the local culture and you're connecting with nature. Uh, as a photographer, I'm sure you're into light, the phenomenon of light. You've got this, uh, what, this ice rainbow and these kind of things. Yeah, light is amazing in the Arctic, right? You might see no light for two weeks because of ground fog and you wonder what you're doing there. And then all of a sudden, um, you'll get eight hours of sunset light, you know, which we get for maybe a half hour or something down here. Eight it, hours of a sunset? Well, you can get it, yeah, where well, the wow. light's low enough. And yeah. it, of course, it gets lower and lower, but you get this, you know, the angles of the light are just uh, spectacular at different times of the year. In the summertime, of course, it's going to be at night. And the wintertime, it's going to be in the shorter days unless it, there's no yeah. light at all. And as a photographer, as a nature photographer, and the outside being my studio... Everything's about, you know, before twilight and during twilight and after twilight. And again, you know, at the other end of the day, the opposite way. So when I'm doing my work, making the TV show, we have something called magic hour. Mm -hmm. And the sun's going straight up and down. And that magic hour is like a fast moving uh, hourglass, you know. But when you have the Arctic situation, you've got a slow magic hour, don't you? Oh, you have many magic hours in one day. In one row, yeah. So, you know, you can live a month of magic hours in a day. You know, But the Arctic, you have to work hard to see these things or get these things. Again, it's, you know, at face value. You think none of these things exist. But it's a, it's a land uh, that holds so many secrets. And slowly over time, only the secrets will be revealed to you if you're in the right place at the right time. You probably have to spend the time. I mean, it must seem silly for you to see people jetting up there and having an Arctic experience and jetting back. Um, yeah, I try not to be judgmental. You know, mm-hmm. what works for others works for others. I'm lucky in the sense that I've uh, arranged my life to be able to to do that, maybe. What is the ice rainbow? 
and it's ice fog coming off the water, right? You have, you have this lead at zero degrees, 10 below zero. You have this open area of water due to currents and what have you in springtime that it opens up. So there's evaporation off the water, of course, and it's making moisture in the air. And then the angle of the light just produces this uh, rainbow, just as the rain does, creating moisture in the air. And you can capture that on film? Uh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Now, exactly. if people want to look at your work, they can go to your website, yeah. lefteyepro.com, mm-hmm. L-E-F-T-E-Y-E-P-R-O.com. You've written an incredible book called The Last Polar Bear, many years in the making. It's gorgeous photographs of polar bears. Thank you. When you're out there in the elements, uh, as a photographer, I read that your lens cracked once just because of the cold? Actually, because of the heat, but it was due because of the cold. Um, without understanding, you know, you take metal out into extreme cold temperatures, 20 to 40 below zero, and then you take it into some place that's, you know, 30 or 40 above zero. Of course, all the moisture is going to jump on the metal. So I got this lens really fogged up, and we didn't have enough heat in the tent to warm the tent up, which we've been doing every day. So I tried to use a little stove to dry the tent off before I went out that morning. And this is like a day before the polar bear came out of its den with its cubs, which I've been waiting for over 20 days for. Oh, no. And the lens cracked, but luckily enough, you can focus through those cracks. And uh, it was a good Nikon lens, and it seemed to work just fine anyway. Wow. You must be sort of like a Wild West trapper up there. You learned in the wilds uh, using drifting snow as a compass? Yes. My friends have uh, taught me that in certain areas where you always have an east or west wind, you can not be able to see anything around you, such as the mountains or out towards the ocean. But you know the drifts, which way they're going to lay and which direction they're going to point so you know where you're headed. And this is an amazing thing about traveling with my Inupiat friends um, like Jack and my friend Bruce that they always look at the ground and they might not be able to see 30 feet in front of them. They might even get lost, but they never seem to get upset or worried about it. And they always seem to find their way, whether it's by little points and bumps in the land that they remember. Oh, I remember this bump. You know, this means that I'm at analog or, you know, and then all of a sudden. So over the years, you start to learn, too, to see the land like they do. They really break it down into small bits and pieces. I saw in your book that you're actually building an igloo. Is that a practical thing to build, or do you do that to say you've built an igloo? Uh, For us, it was very practical because we didn't want to camp right near the polar bear den or where we thought the polar bear would come out, but we we wanted to get out of the wind because it's 30 below zero and you can't sit out in the wind all day, you know, a 20-knot wind. So we built an igloo to kind of try to hide so the polar bear wouldn't see us moving. Not that she didn't know we were there, but we wouldn't alarm her. And then for us, it was shelter. And an igloo, a wonderful thing about the igloo is when you first go in an igloo, the snow actually absorbs the moisture. So it's it's relatively warm place to be, 20 to 30 degrees, and you can even run a stove. But traditionally, the Canadian Inuits that used igloos would have to build new ones every so many days because the inside will ice up from uh, just from breathing and the moisture that we create. And if you look at the picture in my book, the polar bear den and the walls of the den are all scratched. Not only is she making the den a little larger, but she's peeling that ice off the wall so the snow will still absorb the moisture to keep it a comfortable place for the cubs to grow up and be raised in because they're born with no hair at like a pound to a pound and a half and they can't see and they depend on this environment to stay warm while it's 40 or 50 below zero outside. So the polar bear has learned to do that and the Eskimo people also do that? Exactly. It's often wondered, uh, Richard Nelson wrote an essay in there who lived with uh, people from Wainwright for a while, you know, saying that the Inupiat must have learned from the, uh, the polar bear, like a polar bear if it's on thin ice. It can travel on extremely thin ice by spreading out its front paws and its back paws to distribute its weight. And uh, he was taught by the Inuit people that this is how you're supposed to walk when you're in thin ice, when you're at the edge of a lead and you're hunting a seal. You want to. So it's often said that uh, Inuit people learned a lot of their skills on the ice from the polar bear. Just observing. Just observing, yeah. I guess not talking with them. Uh, talking without language, yes. Right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Stephen Kaslowski. He's a photographer journalist, and he's published a book, a beautiful collection of photographs and his stories as what he's learned as a photographer in the polar region called The Last Polar Bear. Stephen's website is lefteyepro.com, L-E-F-T-E-Y-E-P-R-O.com. That's where you can see some of his photographs. Stephen, you've spent years, literally, up in, in the polar region Traveling, in, it's called in the bush, right? I mean, you fly from town to town, little tiny population. Sure. That must be very expensive. 
start with? Yeah, it's it can be very expensive. Sometimes people let you wash dishes, such as friends did uh, that took me into places and what have you. Um, but then you you learn how to get around, and sometimes you might get around by snow machine. While I did this uh, this book project, The Last Polar Bear, I would travel hundreds of miles following my Inupia friend on a snow machine, say to go from uh, village to Herschel Island, which is just over the Canadian border to the west side of the Mackenzie River Delta, where uh, Inuit people have lived for thousands and thousands of years. And you can also fly on small plane. I've also snowshoed and walked to certain areas. Excuse me, when you say snow machine, is that the same as snowmobile? It, exactly the same as snowmobile or ski do. Why know? do why do people say? I, I've heard I politicians think I do. say, I say snow, snow machine. I don't know why I say snow machine, but it really should be snowmobile or ski do. I think ski do sounds better, but ski do is cooler. Yeah, clearly, Stephen, when you're up there doing your work as a photographer, you're connecting with the indigenous people. It seems like you went up there basically to find nature. Yeah, you know, I, that's always my goal, to get out of society and get into nature and enjoy the beautiful of this cyclical life, this natural environment. But when you go to a place such as the Arctic and you go to some of these other places um, and you're as ignorant as I was when I started and you think they're just huge, wild places, they've actually been inhabited by races and cultures for thousands of years. And you quickly learn that, especially on the Arctic coast of Alaska, that the Inuit people, this has been their home, it is their home, and it will be their home for a long time to come. So you quickly learn that to understand this environment, which is so harsh. The first time I was up there photographing muskox, I remember it was about five degrees and my fingertips were starting to burn. I was wondering how animals could live here, never mind people, that these people you know, hold, still hold the secrets to how to get around and travel and be comfortable in this environment and deal with the, the discomfort. Have you picked up tips on surviving in the cold from the Eskimo people? Oh, quite a few, yeah. What's an example? An example would be wearing really warm clothes, always being able to make camp at any point in time. So if you have to stay somewhere, you can stay somewhere, and always being able to get out of the weather. Get out of the wind? Get out of the wind. I mean, really, that's the key. You know, the wind is the killer. You can be in 20 below zero and be quite comfortable if there's no wind on your back and you have enough warm clothes. And a lot of them still use skins and what have you. And I'm often up there in my gear, and I have some really good Wiggies gear, which is used by the military. And then all this Patagonia stuff with zipper after zipper. And it's kind of ridiculous at a point. And then when you see uh, a Nupiat person put on a, a sheep parka, which is nice and warm, one layer, and he's standing out there 40 below, and he's got, you know, a couple T-shirts or something under it. You really appreciate this connection with nature and an ability to use, you know, animal skins to stay warm and survive in such a harsh environment and enjoy it at the same time. So you see people that actually don't need all this modern synthetic gear. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they use quite a bit of it too, but they they use quite a bit of the old school because it's still just better, you know, in a lot of ways. Now, your goal in going up there is to capture the wonder of this nature, and one of those wonders is the northern lights. Did you shoot the northern lights? Yes, I did. And uh, that's kind of interesting for somebody who loves to watch animals. Um, You know, you're always waiting for that beautiful morning and that beautiful evening. And northern lights is the opposite. You try to sleep all day, and then you try to get up after it's getting dark. And you wait for the darkest part of the night, the coldest part of that 24-hour period, to maybe the sky lights up and, and flares up with the aurora borealis and the, the reaction of all that. But that, when you stay up all night, you don't know if it's going to happen or not? You have no idea. You know, they have websites now that you can watch if there's going to be a solar flare. But I'm usually not that high tech. You know, I'm just, oh, okay, it's clear. Maybe there's a shot. So you sit there in the cold all night. You know, thinking, again, it's going to happen the next minute, it's going to happen the next minute. So you're not really patient. You're impatient with the belief that it's going to happen at any second. And then eventually sometimes it happens. And then you need to know all the tricks. Your camera gear needs to be kept nice and cold because if you take it someplace warm and put it out in the cold or if you're by a stream and there's fog coming off the stream. So it's many of the times that I've had a beautiful light show and then eventually looked at the film or the back of the digital camera and there's nothing there or it's fogged in because I didn't follow the correct procedure. You know, there's when working in the cold, there are all these procedures, you know, things that work in temperatures we live in here in the Pacific Northwest don't necessarily work the same way or nearly as well when you get into zero degrees or 20 below or 30 or 40 below. In that kind of environment, you know, camping out for two weeks just to see the polar bear come out of his den or sleeping in the day to stay up all night to see if there's going to be some northern lights, it must teach you both patience and how to observe. Oh, absolutely. And, what, and what have you learned about that? I learned that uh, if you you sit and look at something long enough, it will appear as many different things over time. You know, um, it's uh, 
you can't often take a quick glance at something and, and understand what it is or what's going on. You really have to sit and wait. And I think that's an amazing part of the Inupiaq culture. You know, they uh, often are very quiet and, and they, they can talk a lot too, but they often don't have much to say. And in Point Hope, when the whalers eventually started wanting to stay in that area, the Point Hope residents in the northwest corner of Alaska settled them um, a little way away from the village and they called it Jabbertown. Because uh, as a Western society, they would always jibber-jabber a lot, talk all the time. The land speaks to you in any nature, in the mountains, in the Cascades, or anywhere. And if you sit there, I mean, there can be a giant raw, whether it's clouds rolling overhead or wind coming through or light coming through or, you know, and, and it's just different than our own voices. And it probably gives you a ability to give a second look to a native culture that we might write off as superstitious or something like that, but they've got some deep roots and some thoughtful observations. Well, yeah, they spent you know thousands of years being uh, being entrusted with that area or, or living in that area, and they have an understanding to it that's just amazing. Have you found any parallel examples further south among Indian tribes and so on? Yeah, I think if you look in uh, the BC coast at the spirit bear, which is a black bear that's white, again, it's colorless like the polar bear. And you look at the legend, these people have wonderful legends in the BC coast, the Indians there about uh, underground cities and underwater cities that have all kinds of animals and fish as poles. And But the, the spirit bear, the legend that goes with that animal is that um, the gods, when the, um, the ice sheet moved back and the glaciers moved back to the mountain, made one out of so many black bears white to remind the people that life comes from the ice and comes from the water. So they wouldn't forget, even though the glaciers didn't come right down onto the water anymore and they were higher up in the mountains. Wow. And that's sort of a thought-provoking comment on the canary in the mine shaft aspect of us losing the polar bears because of global warming. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we lose the polar bear. We lose a lot of what's going on in the Arctic and this amazing environment. And then eventually we lose all kinds of other environments, which we don't really hear much about right now, which are starting to fall apart. You look at a lot of mountain climates where they only are in certain elevations. A lot of scientists say that we're on the hugest amount of extinction since way back before we were even on this planet. So that's why you write in your book, The Polar Bear's Story is Ultimately Our Story. Absolutely. It is our story. We're all connected. The world is connected. And uh, as much as we disconnect from nature in certain ways, we can, we can never really disconnect from it. We're all part of it. And that's why we should take care of the planet. I think you've picked up a lot of wisdom hanging out in a snowdrift waiting for the polar bear to come out of his den. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate that. Stephen Koslowski, author and photographer of The Last Polar Bear. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Listen again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. His Europe 101 History and Art for Travellers, and his new Travel as a Political Act books deal with a higher set of road skills. And his country and city guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.